Hello and welcome to the Final Girls podcast where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. In this first series, we're bringing on special guests to dive deep into film and TV shows with witchcraft at the heart of them. I'm Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls and your podcast host. We're coming up to the end of this series about witches. This episode is going to be the last one where we discuss a full film. We've got another one coming next week where we'll be doing a roundup. But for now, we're going back to 1942 to discuss a delightful, mischievous little film called I Married a Witch. Not strictly a horror, but rather a romantic fantasy. It's interesting to see how the film has had an enduring influence on other films and series that meld romantic plot with witchcraft, like Bell Book and Candle, Practical Magic, like we've discussed on this podcast, or TV's Bewitched and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I Married a Witch stars Veronica Lake as the titular sorceress, a 300-year-old witch that wrecks havoc when she falls in love with a young but uptight politician played by Frederick March. I'm joined in this episode by Pamela Hutchinson, an extraordinary film writer, critic and historian, to talk about this amazing gem of a film and Lake's performance in it. Pamela, thank you so much. Um, I'm not going to lie, we've spoken about this, so this is not catching you off guard. I've been really, really dying to speak to you about witches in general. And it's I'm really happy that we finally made this happen. And especially with this film. I, I am thrilled. This is such a beautiful film. And the topic of witches itself is inexhaustible. So I'm very happy to gab. This is like a five hour podcast, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've, I've like allotted about seven hours for us to record. And then I'm going to whittle it down to five. Yeah, perfect. People have got the patience for that, I'm sure. I mean, who's not got the patience for Veronica Lake? I mean, I think she tried the patience of many of the people she worked with, but that show us it's all it's all fun, right? It's all forgiven. It. Yeah. So talk to me about your relationship with I Married a Witch. When did you first see it and it kind of has your opinion changed or evolved about the film? Oh, you know, it's a very shallow story I'm about to relate. This is definitely one of those films where I saw a still, one of those wonderful publicity stills with Veronica Lake and little little witchy and pumpkins and cauldrons and the smoke. And I thought, I have to watch that film. Uh, it has to be done. And I just remember taping it off the TV and being absolutely thrilled. And so it's it's sort of like it's like a comfort watch, something that appealed to me on a purely aesthetic level at first. And of course, I watched it and I thought it was very funny. What subsequently happened is, and, you know, full confession, I became a massive silent film nerd. And this is obviously a terrible thing to happen to a young woman, but it did happen. And so now I see it in the context of not just Hollywood at the time, but René Clair and his career. And he makes some of my favourite films, basically. My favourite silent comedies are directed by him. So to see him, to see the fact that he made this beautiful Hollywood romantic comedy is just a delightful full circle for me. And now I get so much more from this film because I've seen all these 1920s comedies. Can you paint a little bit of a picture of the context of René Clair's work and where does a married a witch sit within it? Okay, so René Clair obviously was a French filmmaker and his early work um, 
basically his first film was a, a short film called uh, Parikidor, so or it's called The Crazy Ray, and it's this wonderful, beautiful science fiction film about a, a mad professor who freezes all of Paris with a kind of sleeping ray. And then one group of people who've been in an airplane have not been affected. So they land in Paris and they have the run of the city and it uses freeze frame and so on to, to, to show this special effects, this kind of very simple idea of being able to play in a silent city. It's actually quite evocative of some of the things we're going through right now, actually. Um, and then he made things like On Track, the classic avant-garde film, and he carried on making comedies that all have this very kind of whimsical, playful tone, like uh, one of the most famous films is The Italian Straw Hat, which is basically a French farce, um, but very elegantly done. He did, and then he eventually, he actually came and made some films in Britain in the 30s, um, sorry I should say that he made these wonderful French musicals at the turn of the 30s he came to Britain briefly and then he went to Hollywood where you know he made some relatively famous films this is the second film he made in Hollywood the first one he made was The Flame of New Orleans with Marlena Dietrich as a sort of southern belle who captures men by putting on these elaborate fainting fits and just generally a minx it doesn't really quite work. It definitely feels like a French film with Hollywood actors and it was a complete flop. So by the time he came to make I Married a Witch, no one had any expectations. He was no longer this great uh, emigre talent. He was just uh, someone who had had a stinker. So that gave him a little bit of freedom to make something which I'm sure you agree is just a delightful, mischievous little film. I mean, I think those two adjectives are kind of perfect for it because it is a, it is delightful and it is really mischievous. And I kind of wanted to ask you, how would you define this film in a way? Like, is it a scruple comedy? Is it a fantasy film? There's tiny little brushstrokes of kind of horrific things, but it's obviously not a horror film. Is it a romance? Does it kind of live in between all those genres? I wouldn't necessarily classify it in screwball terms, although obviously that's an influence on it with a certain amount of the kind of frisson between the two lead characters, between um, Frederick Marsh's character and Veronica Lake's character, that kind of, you know, I hate you, I love you kind of thing. I think it's a fantasy romantic comedy. I don't really feel it as much of a horror film. Partly, I feel that the way he uses smoke and fire and all those aspects that might and the magic tricks that might make you uh, think of horror, he uses them in such a kind of whimsical way and a very old fashioned way. Uh, yeah, it does feel a little bit like the trick films he used to make, but with a just sort of better Hollywood production value. So I think of it as a romantic comedy, but I'm happy to completely talk about it in terms of the horror genre for the purposes of this podcast, because I know, Anna, you only like horror films. Yes, this this is me. I only exclusively watch horror films or otherwise I just project horror onto whimsical, <laughs> screwball romance films from the 1940s. That I also Wouldn't do. that be awful if you did? <laughs> that would be a terrible life. I'm glad you don't. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's an ongoing conflict that I have with myself. I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, well, I want to talk a lot about Veronica Lake and her character, yeah. Jennifer. So she's presented, uh, we, we meet her and her father who are executed at first in the, uh, in the 16th century, if I'm not wrong. How would you describe Jennifer? Well, I mean, the simple thing to say would be to say that Jennifer is a witch. But there's an awful lot going on there. When we think about 
witch trials in New England and uh, the medieval, we don't necessarily believe that all those women really were witches. And then you have to think about, so what could have been Jennifer's crime? And you see how, shall we say, sweetly lustful she is. So <laughs> you sort of think of her as both a witch and someone who isn't a witch. She's just a... She's just a girl who's got an eye for a fella. No, she is genuinely, uh, she does genuinely have witchcraft skills. What's interesting is that there's, even though she claims to be set out on a path of villainy, she's got a revenge motive um, that, you know, she wants to right the wrong. She wants to curse this this line of men to be unhappy in love. And she thinks that, you know, making him fall in love with her will be some kind of terrible revenge. She's just so sweet. And whether the whether we're being fooled or whether Frederick Marsh is being fooled, I'm not sure. But yeah, she's so enchanting that we're always on the side of the mischief that she wants to put over. And that's interesting. So she's not, we can't see her as a villain. She, We want her to wreak her misrule upon the woolly clan. I mean, you're right in that she is sort of this uh, quite feisty, quite lustful uh, character. And how do you think kind of Veronica Lake's scream presence fills out that performance well she's uh quite tiny and minxy looking uh it's interesting to have such a, a blonde witch you know i know it's not completely unheard of but we have this certain aesthetic that we associate of course for quite a long time lot of the time she's acting purely with her voice and she has a very distinctive voice it's very light and feathery and it works really well i mean the soundtrack on this film all the way through is actually really interesting but mm-hmm. she actually had this kind of magical persona in some ways you could say if you look at one of her her big breakout films this gun for hire have you seen that she plays a nightclub singer it's a film noir so of course she plays a nightclub singer but she has a nightclub singer whose gimmick is magic tricks so she does little conjuring tricks and it's really quite you know old-fashioned as i say in a similar way to this film but you know that's sort of part of her persona and she's very glamorous. She's been in Sullivan's Travels at this point, so she's done comedy, but she's done comedy as sort of being straight woman. And I think now, if we look at Veronica Lake, if, we, if someone says Veronica Lake, we immediately think of Hollywood glamour. And although she's incredibly mm. beautiful in this role, it's not really that poised femme fatale kind of magic that we think of. She does seem a little bit like a little girl. She is obviously much younger than Frederick Marsh. She does play it almost like a, like a feisty troublemaker teenager in a way. Like she more than a vengeful sorceress, she playing pranks yeah. on him, which kind of is a, a strange balance to strike for a film that is so airy and flighty and funny to take a quite a, a, a dense and horrific premise, which is, you know, two people at the start are being burned at the stake. And we don't <laughs> see that, but they're being burned alive. Yeah. And they curse a whole line of men to romantic misery. And then when they come back, like, actually, it just feels like she's more concerned whether she's a blonde or a brunette and (laughs) with annoying uh, Wooly than she is with actually seeking revenge on him. You sort of feel like the centuries have have maybe calmed her down a little bit, made her realise... there's something interesting when you talk about fire because fire is so important in this film. They meet in a yes. fire. They, there's a fire set very pointedly at the Pilgrim Hotel, um, which we can get back to that, I think. But 
one thing I really like is when she's sort of a newlywed in this film, she sort of pouts and plays with the matches and tells the landlady that she'll learn to set the fire herself because she's got to become more domestic now that she's a married woman. And of mm. course, she can conjure fire with her fingertips or her spells rather, but she can't light the match to, for love nor money, really. And she ends up getting into a bit of a, a strop and throwing them all on the floor. And this is sort of this way in which she's both incredibly in control because she has magical powers and she can fly, she do all kinds of tricks and potions, but she's also quite hapless and completely ill at ease in this modern world. It seems to be almost a a trope and development of kind of a woman that is, uh, let's say, kind of in control and powerful in so many ways, but has to be clumsy in order to appear approachable. Yeah, and the woman that she's sort of set against in this film... Uh, Frederick Marsh's fiance, played by Susan Hayward, is very capable and very mm. clipped voice and very sensible woman. And obviously, the, the woman he's meant to be marrying to advance his political career and so forth. And so, she is everything that's opposite to that. She's a bit of a liability. There's there's hints of a later trope here, the kind of manic pixie dream girl. Mm-hmm. It's also a little bit like the film Topper, where the ghost comes in and teaches the stuffy old gent to to live a brighter, lighter life. You know, there's an element of Hollywood very often just reveling in the idea of play and childhood and that kind of thing. It just mm-hmm. It's just a bit of fun. And I think there's definitely a subtext here of René Clair coming in and bringing a kind of European comic sensibility into what he mm. seems to suggest in this film is quite an uptight American society. All these references to pilgrims and Puritans and the establishment and so on. Um, whereas our friends are, have come from far away and have a slightly different look at life. They don't take it so seriously as the Americans do. Two things that kind of are often associated with witches on screen are power and se- and sexuality. So kind of with the power side of things, you know, what do you make of the way that her powers are portrayed in the film? And not just kind of on a, on a technical aspect as to what she can actually do and how she manifests her, her witchy abilities, but also kind of how she deploys that because like you mentioned before, you know, she's, she can conjure fire with her fingertips, but she can't operate matches. You know, there's this seems to be this disconnect between a very powerful supernatural being and kind of a clumsy uh, teenage girl persona almost. Yeah, she's, she's definitely someone who has to grow up and grow into skills. There's a, the tension in the film in many ways, and this is, comes to the final line, is between love and witchcraft. And mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film, she's quite a young girl and she only has witchcraft. She knows what to do with fire and with potions, though she might get it catastrophically wrong, but she doesn't know how to make a man fall in love with her. And that's the problem. Like that is the sort of feminine art that she really wants to learn with the kind of thing that another a woman of a, a similar body age to her in America would maybe have learned. And she's got everything that you think she needs. You know, she's incredibly beautiful and we see her dressed in chiffon and with her long blonde hair, but she doesn't have those seduction techniques and that's sort of what she learns across the film, you know, how to grow up and be a kind of sexy woman and and then a wife. Which is interesting kind of to my to my second point is kind of how how do you think she also kind of fits into or maybe helped create a mold of a a witch on screen that is presented both as kind of a, a woman who doesn't quite 
know or understand her appeal or how to or romance or kind of how the romantic and her romance and sexuality work in her world but also is incredibly kind of sultry and is almost punished for that because kind of as you mentioned at the beginning very flirty very salty all obviously kind of incredibly beautiful and to a degree you almost kind of at least traditionally in films and tv but also in the myth of the witch kind of female sexuality plays a big part of it like they're almost seductresses who are going to lure men to their deaths it's this strange idea that has has sprung up over centuries you know um the idea that a woman could be so beautiful that she would victimize a man uh you know that, that she would have all the control and obviously yeah. we sort of you know, if you look at history, um, generally, when men and women enter into partnerships, our society has set it up so that men have all the control and all the power. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it just it carries on today. You know, uh, people always say marriage is really good for men's health and really terrible for women's health, let alone the fact that they're expected to do more of the work and you get less pay and, and so forth. So there's this sort of idea that's completely cultural and nothing to do with you know the facts of life that Mm -hmm. that women might be so beautiful that they might be dangerous (laughs) um but it obviously it it, it pervades and what we also do is when we think about that in terms of like films and hollywood glamour and there's an idea that if someone looks perfect then everything's great for them and so you Mm -hmm. see all the fan magazines constantly pointing out that all the film stars can't stay married Mm. you know she may look like veronica lake but she can't mm. keep hold of a man. And, and this is the thing that we always try to say, like, you know, look, this isn't this isn't a real woman. This isn't the ideal woman. This is just a, a fictional version of a woman. This is the siren. This isn't, you know, the kind of woman you actually want to marry and live with. I always think of with this film, I think of something that I watched a lot when I was a little girl and absolutely adored, which was Bewitched. Mm-hmm. The idea that she looks like the perfect housewife. And obviously she's completely incapable of cooking dinner, but she can sort of travel through dimensions. With a twitch of her nose so it's something quite interesting i think to people that the idea that uh, women have all these secrets like the idea of women being mysterious uh, and you know i think this it feeds into a lot of that i mean you know obviously in this film frederick marsh's character is an incredibly successful establishment figure and if he wants a trophy wife you know in 1942 he should be able to get one and the fact that he gets one that who disrupts his life who doesn't have any of the skills that you might expect a woman of her age to have it sort of suggests that you know women are always this eternal puzzle to people I mean maybe that's what women were like in 1942. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting you mentioned Bewitched and I want to come back to that in a little bit later but what do you think of as the appeal of mixing up romance and witchcraft because this might be one of the first but it's certainly not the last sort of romance fantasy genre blend uh, that utilizes witchcraft as as a way to either make the female character choose between witchcraft and love or um Mm -hmm. or create some sort of barrier between her and her object of affection or make her learn a lesson or something like that you know we covered bell book and candle on this podcast and practical magic as well and there's a a couple of other uh, romantic comedies that utilize both in series and film form that utilize witchcraft as a starting point so you know in a roundabout way what do you think kind of is the the combination of of those two of the subject and the, and the tone of it that seem appealing to to film and well i mean quite i'm gonna say something it's gonna sound really really blunt 
which seems harsh when we're talking about such a delightful film, you know, in films, um, generally, in the Hollywood films, that there's this idea, and we're already really familiar with this idea, that the woman is the love object. You know, she's the sex symbol, but she's the love object. She's there to be the love interest for the male. So when you see a woman on screen, you know there's going to be a romantic subtext or a romantic plot line that's going to come up. And the female characters are always within that space. So if you give a female character superpowers, I mean, you know, wouldn't you, like, maybe build your own magic island or try and, um, you know, cure world poverty, you know, <laughs> you know, but no, women only have magic for the purposes of love potions and spells and seduction mm-hmm. and things like that. Of course, what happens, I mean, it is, you know, the way I put it, it makes it suggest it's quite depressing, but of course, Hollywood's all about making all these stories about romance and love, about suggesting that it's something more magical and mysterious than, than could possibly be imagined. And, and so being a witch, being a love witch, having a love potion, that's about as good as it gets for a woman in a Hollywood film. Expanding a little bit on the the witch aspect of the film, kind of what do you make of the way that the film uses those artifacts and those signifiers of a witch that we're all incredibly familiar with? Kind of, you know, the broomstick and the mm. the the pointed hat I think only appears on the film poster as opposed to the actual film. But she does wear that cloak, so. doesn't she? Which yeah. yeah, she wears the cloak, which is really great. I think it's mm-hmm. really clever. It's a beautiful film. Like the the costumes by Edith Head and so on. It's beautifully art directed mm-hmm. film. It's clever because those objects look entirely incongruous. There would never be a broomstick like that in that house. Mm-hmm. The idea that she turns up at the house late at night um with wearing that black cloak and he's dressed like a bridegroom and so they assume that they're newlyweds and it's like no Mm. she looks like a witch can't you all see (laughs) Uh, there's something just intrinsically comical about the idea of witchcraft in this film which is great because really um it's quite safe magic in the end I think everyone gets out of the hotel fire alive don't they yeah yeah I don't think yeah technically Jennifer and her father are resurrected so they were dead at one point at the beginning Yes, yes, that's true. But who killed them? It wasn't witches, was it? It was the Christians. They're the bad guys. So, I mean, there's something intrinsically comical about that. And of course, it carries right through to the end of the film where you see the sort of flash forward to when they have small children and Mm. her daughter is playing with the broomstick. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's kind of implied that it is a that it's not a knowledge that can be acquired, that it's sort of a, they're, her and her father are natural born witches and that the lineage, the line of witches can continue afterwards, even though, you know, her, um, you know, she's sort of made to choose between love and her powers. Yes, I mean, everything that she does, she's this force of disruption, as we say in the film, and it feels like witchcraft, that's what witchcraft is too. So, for example, she sort of renounces it, and you see her at the end, and she's got her hair done up in a bun, and she looks very Mm. serious, and her her male children are very well behaved. It's just burst out in this unruly wench that her daughter has become, which (laughs) uh, I think it's the, the nanny or the housekeeper just says, I can't with this girl anymore. You know, this girl is going to be trouble. And, you know, that's what, you know, Hollywood comedy is all about. It's about causing trouble. It's the fun of havoc, you know. So in this film, witchcraft, you know, does have all these associations with sex and love, as you say, but it's just mostly the fun of havoc. I mean, nobody wants to live with the Puritans. No, except for some reason, Jennifer does fall in love with Wallace. (laughs) Bring out the inner witch in him. 
What do you make of him? You know, he's played by Frederick March. And we were joking about before that he is not particularly a Hollywood leading man who inspires a lot of uh, fanfare, is he? You know, he, Frederick Marsh was big news, right? He was he was big. He got two Oscars. He's halfway between his Oscars right now. Well, not exactly halfway, but he won an Oscar for Jekyll and Hyde, another mm-hmm. kind of potiony, witchcrafty kind of film. And he's going to win one for the best years of our lives, a film whose importance to American audiences you probably can't overstate. Mm-hmm. He's very serious. He had this very respectable background. You know, he used to be a banker. He'd, he'd served in the war. He was a banker. And then he had a health scare and he thought, you know, life's too short. And he went into acting. And so he's a little bit older, a little bit more mm. serious. I mean, the kind of leading man that was a little bit more popular at the time, this kind of respectable, marriageable kind of bloke. Um, mm. Apparently, Joel McRae, who is probably much more a modern audience's idea of a Hollywood heartthrob, was, was the first choice to play Wallace Willey. But he refused to work with Veronica Lake again after Sullivan's Travels because she was such a minx, quite frankly. Uh, so Frederick Marsh uh, stepped up to the plate and was probably a, a, probably a boon for the studio because he was such a big name. Mm. But of course, the tension between the two of them is much more kind of like, weirdly, it's old world and new world kind of thing. You know, he's uptight and she's young and free-spirited and that works really well together. We know that on set, they were at odds. Um, there are lots of stories. Uh, well, mm. he, she says that he, he came on to her and she said no. And he just said that she was nothing but a blonde bimbo and that she, you know about the armchair story, right? Oh, I think I know which one you mean, but do tell. Because it might be a different okay, one. Okay, let me try and tell it in, like a lady would tell it, because <laughs> that's going to be hard. So there's were, a great scene were... in the film. <laughs> no ladylike behavior on this podcast, please. Okay, okay, I'm gonna go for it. Well, I don't know. I've got my natural inner reserve. I probably should have taken some spells before I started this. Um, so uh, there's a great scene in the, in the film where Veronica Lake has been, uh, has Jennifer has been knocked out by a falling pitcher and she's slumped in an armchair. Now, if you or I or anyone else in the world was slumped in an armchair unconscious, I'm just saying we wouldn't look our best. But she looks like a Renaissance painting, so she's grand and she looks beautiful. And then, you know, she has this conversation with Frederick Marsh, she's coming too. And it, as she said in, in her autobiography, it's a, it's a medium shot. So there's quite a lot of them that's out of shot. So she had her foot raised right into his groin for the whole scene. Which could be violence. It could betoken another kind of impulse, but she's playing with him. It's also suggested that she wore a weight under her dress uh, sometimes when he had to carry her just to make him, obviously, him strain and look older. It's quite mean. And I sort of somehow, because this film makes me feel that way, this film makes me like that behaviour. Yeah, same. I mean, I I not I didn't know about the behind the scenes stories when I first watched the film, but I did when I rewatched it for this purpose and I was trying to pinpoint some of the scenes where she might be weighing herself down with weights. And I just love the not just not just going to fully respect their acting ability to hide that as they're performing the scene and knowing exactly what's going on, but also just the sheer um, compatibility of Veronica Lake as an actress and as a Hollywood figure with this particular character where she is, you know, also quite feisty and playful and 
playing pranks and that she was also doing that to Frederick March on set. It kind of fits perfectly. I think it elevates the film for me, even though they did not get along. Yeah. Yeah, she, I mean, she definitely was not respectful of this big star, if that's true. I mean, I would say one thing about the weight story. You know, mm. I think that there's a way that you have to read Hollywood anecdotes and, you know, you know, Hoyle, bubble, trouble, pinch of salt, definitely in the cauldron mm-hmm. for this one. Um, if your co-star has to carry you and they're straining and they say that you are heavy, yeah, then you say you have weights under your dress, if you know what I mean. Yep. So it could go either way. It could mm-hmm. be true or it could not be true. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, Veronica Lake looks like she's, you know, about two stone dripping wet. But, you know, if Frederick Marsh wanted to get at her, he would have said she was heavy. I'm just saying, I mean, I just, I, I think we should always try and uh, read these things as if they were sacred texts and therefore we interrogate them quite vigorously. But it definitely goes to the tension between them and the kind of minxiness. Mm. Renee Claire has said that they have such different acting styles. Mm-hmm. He sometimes would have to shoot what Veronica Lake thought was a rehearsal to get her because she was always best on the first take, whereas Frederick Marsh took his time to build up to the perfect performance. Mm. So they were they weren't even acting together at any point, pretty much. I mean, they're completely from different realms, which is suitable for the film because, you know, I've seen it. They are. <laughs> and we haven't really spoken about uh, one of the other kind of leads of the film who is Jennifer's dad, Daniel, I believe his name is. Mm-hmm. I find it really interesting the fact that we even get a older male witch who's a paternal mm-hmm. figure in this film. It's not something that's kind of that particularly usual. It's usually, you know, an aunt or a mum or a grandmother. It's kind of always older women who are portrayed as the the sage older witches. Um, unless, you know, mm-hmm. warlocks are part of whatever the extended universe is. But what did you make of him, uh, of his and Jennifer's relationship? And the fact that he is essentially the one forcing her to to choose it's one of those really odd things where he's her father. Is he? Well, he's sort of hundreds of thousands of years older than her. And there's a point where someone says, well, that's your father. And she's like, well, no, he's not. Oh, well, no, that's just his body. Um, so their relationship yeah. isn't entirely as paternal as you might expect it to be, like you say. Um, it's interesting like to trying to think about whether he's a warlock or a witch. He appears to be practicing exactly the same magic that she is. So yeah, we've got to assume he's a witch. Mm-hmm. But if you think about him, Cecil Calloway, very um, impish performance, and he's got some great lines. I love it when you know because he drinks too much, and someone says, "Oh, you know, you're you're hungover," and he's like, "Don't tell me, I invented the hangover." And you think <laughs> it would be a witch, wouldn't it? Yes. I mean, terrible, terrible man. Keep him locked up. You know, uh, he invented the hangover. Right. Burn him at the stake. I would. <laughs> Not that Puritans really know too much about that. But um, I definitely got myself sidetracked off my point there. But the character that he reminds me most of in classic cinema is um, Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life. He's an angel. Oh, yes. He's got that sort of avuncular, impish personality he's there he's sort of he does get involved he does get quite wound up by what jennifer does it's true but there's an element of detached amusement i think comes from having lived for so many thousand years uh you know he has unlike jennifer who immediately sort of sees her way into this modern world he's got no love for the living at all he to him they're just pawns and he does get a little bit menacing towards the end. It almost feels like it's it's taken from another film. 
Yeah, and it's it, it does get more and more serious. I mean, he really, I think, you know, for a long time, he doesn't really think that Jennifer's ever going to sort of go off and be happy with Wallace Woolley. And you can see that because he's called Wallace Woolley. So, you know, <laughs> why would you give up witchcraft for Wally? Um, yeah, it gets darker and darker, which justifies the fantastic punishment that Jennifer doles out for him. But, you know, she in turn, you know, she traps him just like he was trapped in the tree before. Mm-hmm. So it all sort of comes. It's really nicely scripted film. One thing I do know about the film, which I haven't read the source novel, it's sort of a, a an incomplete novel finished by a colleague written by Thorne Smith, wasn't it? The Passionate Witch. And um, he was actually an alcoholic. And there's another famous alcoholic in the film. But mm. uh, he was an alcoholic. And it's a, quite a dark book. So Preston Sturgis, the producer, and Renee Clare worked on making it lighter. But one of the things I think is a lot of the best comedy has that dark underside. So what works mm. really well here is that effectively you've got a film about lightness and charming little blonde witch who just wants to fall in love with the nice handsome man. But really all the backstory, like you say, is years of oppression and this terrible murder at the stake and a curse. Yeah, no, completely. And the fact that also his punishment is like you mentioned before getting trapped in the bottle like he has no escape from that he is trapped in you know this metaphor for alcoholism and addiction and that's played for laughs but if you take away the laugh track it is actually pretty dark yeah it's it's a vicious thing to do it's it's interesting how much once you get into the kind of hollywood romantic comedy mindset it's that you all you want to see happen really is you want to see veronica lake and frederick marsh get together and she does terrible things all the way along the line i mean starting with the fire it's it's pretty brutal you know that, that they mm. do that um but our desire for a romantic happy ending means that we'll go along with anything even putting your father in a rum bottle and she never quite crosses the line into unlikability, despite doing all of these terrible, quite cruel things. I mean, because I think the religion of this film is fun, you know. So she's not as bad as all the boring political types, and she's not as bad as Susan Hayward, who's just uptight and just wants to get married and, and be, you know, go on to the next phase of her life. She wants to have fun, and so is the audience. We just completely respond to her. It's pure pantomime, really, isn't it? Mm. She's a sort of puckish character who brings <laughs> all the entertainment. If it wasn't for Jennifer... There'd be no joy to be had. She's the joy witch. She is the joy witch. Or as I've read in an article about the film, the Manic Pixie Dream Witch. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, it's interesting. What's interesting is that I definitely, I think you know, mentioned that trope earlier, mm. but I honestly think that she changes more than he does. And, you know, I think it's her life that's improved. She gets to live in a whole new way. And, you know, when he says, do you want to have children? She says, of course I do. And that's what she gets, you know, um, rather than roaming the earth as a puff of smoke with her dad. (laughs) Which she's done for quite a while at this point. So she's ready for a new challenge. As a complete aside, it's such a bizarre image to see like two streams of steam or smoke essentially talking to each other for laughs absolutely and when you look at hollywood comedy especially from this period you're really never that far from surrealism you know you think about the marx brothers and you think about all that kind of you know slapstick comedy it's often something quite bizarre whether it's just someone walking around in the wrong hat or carrie grant in a dressing gown or something there's always something out of place in the best kind of hollywood comedy well you know harvey for example and so we see all this marvelous madness and we just accept it because it's in the context of a film that runs no longer than 90 minutes and has a happy ending and has these big film stars in but it's a really strange film i 
particularly love the sequence towards the end when they're in the taxi cab and the taxi cab is driven by Daniel. So in this kind of haunted demon kind of way, demon carriage way, Mm -hmm. he lifts off and they're flying across the city. It's definitely something you see in a dozen silent films. It's brilliantly Mm -hmm. done. And one of the things I like about it is that it's it's a simple bit of magical effect, um, simple bit of magic. And Frederick Marsh turns to Veronica Lake and says, you know, basically, oh, they've mended all the potholes, haven't they? Which is just <laughs> the driest comic line. <laughs> so they've definitely improved this road, I think he says. <laughs> and I think, you know, what a what a politician. He's already th- always thinking about the road surfaces in the municipal area. <laughs> what a... What oh, can we talk about, about the election too? Oh it's... my God, yes, please. <laughs> the, the election sequence is... Suggesting that they might use witchcraft. Oh yeah, well you'll need witchcraft. No one really believes that she's going to throw the election. But we have people who are chanting slogans without even thinking them. Someone who stands up to back one candidate just starts chanting their name or spelling out the name of another, and then you see um, all the X's on the ballot papers just slide mm. down the page from Benzinger, his rival, to Woolley. And if anyone's mm. been involved in local politics. Like having a name that begins with a B is a big advantage over having a number name that begins with a W. You know, everyone knows this. So, you know, he's really like taking all the votes away. It's a landslide. And it's interesting when we we think about politics because they've taken it down to a simple puff of smoke and a simple kind of magic in the air. But that's what we often talk about when we talk about landslide elections. We don't know why it happened. And we we talk about the change in the times and we talk about new ideas in the world and voices of people haven't been listened to. And it brings back to sort of my idea about the idea that she represents a sort of a different world, a different way of living to the sort of establishment in America Mm -hmm. that is, you know, represented by Puritanisms and old money and stuffiness around sex and frigid attitudes about people as well. Um, Yeah, I mean, she's just, she comes in and she wants her man and she will burn down a hotel, but she'll also change the entire political direction of the local area as well. I mean, who knows what he's going to do? I mean, you know, she's dangerous. I hadn't even thought of that, but you're so right. I was just going to say, I do love a political film. And I was actually, when I was re-watching this, I thought, well, this is hardly a great politics film, is it? You know, and then as soon as I saw the X's slide down the ballot papers, I was like, no. Coming back to to witches and to the effect that this film had, it's surprising that it's, I think it is pretty well mm-hmm. known now. Like, you know, it's part of the Criterion Collection. It is considered a classic. Like, it's got Veronica Lake has, as, a, as a Hollywood star of that era has aged really well. You know, she is recognizable and quite iconic. Mm-hmm. but. It was for a long time considered to be somewhat of a, a an underknown film. Like it wasn't really considered uh, a classic. And correct me if I'm wrong. Mm, I think it's true. But I mean, it's really weird what we value now about classical Hollywood is, is different to what was the popular thing then. And and to be fair, like Frederick Marsh is a great example of this. I mean, he's a great actor. We think he was a good man. He founded the, co-founded the Anti-Nazi League, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. You know, Frederick Marsh is a tall, handsome, successful Oscar-winning actor who campaigned for everything that was good in the world. And I think you could say his name in many a cinema, if there was such a thing, if they were open, and find nothing but blank faces. And, you know, at the time, he would have been the big star. And now Veronica Lake, it's interesting, she has a particular kind of pop culture cachet. I mean, LA Confidential didn't hurt, obviously, mm. but she's considered an iconic face of this era. And yet, again, like she had a very short career, really. And even, I mean, Sullivan's Travels, that wasn't really a hit, you know? And mm-hmm. so 
so what we, you know, we think of her as this sort of classic face of the era and the famous iconic haircut, of course, the peekaboo hair, which, of course, she was made to change because it was sort of considered to be wasteful during the war or something. Mm-hmm. She had to have sensible hair to inspire young people to tie their hair back and get on with work. Um, so she wasn't entirely in step with 1942, whereas Frederick Marsh definitely was, I think. Um, and it just shows how tastes change and what we consider to be the canon uh, or just the hits of the film. I mean, I mentioned It's a Wonderful Life, another thing that was pretty much mm-hmm. ignored when it came out. Um, what we take from classic Hollywood now is not what people took from it then necessarily, or certainly what we treasure. So I think one of the things that we like about I Married a Witch, I mean, fundamentally for me, I just love the look of this film. I think it's beautiful mm-hmm. and I love its charm. But there is, as you've you've been pointing out, you know, there's so much kind of subversion about subversive elements about sexuality, about female power and authority, about their capacity to change the world around them and how they might feel in relationships and how they might desire men or desire different lives or try to get out of the, the sort of influence of a paternal figure and you know start their own family or whatever it might be. Um, And we can sort of elevate these films. And why not? Absolutely happy with it. But it's not necessarily what was appealing to audiences at the time. Or if it was, it wasn't celebrated in the same way. And just to start wrapping up, what do you think, you know, we mentioned Bewitched a little bit before. um, But Mm -hmm. what do you think has been its, its influence or its legacy on other portrayals of witches on screen? Obviously, I think the... One of the the famous iconic ones will be obviously Kim Novak and Bell Book and Candle, mm-hmm. but it's it's really I think it's a really popular strain through to the Love Witch and even teenage things like Sabrina and Buffy, um this idea of witchcraft being something that a person can carry about with them as part of their love kit is very very appealing <laughs> to me. Um, it's interesting that um there are films and there are stories in which young women have powers because they're sort of slightly pagan you know they have a witch Mm -hmm. legacy but this is quite an urban version of that Mm -hmm. and she's sort of passing in a quite sophisticated society it's not you know there's a there's a wonderful british silent film where a young woman who goes off and does love spells in the countryside because she's grown up with you know a different kind of religion but uh but here, it's, it almost feels like, you know, a person could go about in the modern world, in the city world, with taxi cabs and politicians, and still be carrying these glamorous witchy secrets. And I think that's very appealing to people. Yeah, I mean, the love witch is clearly the descendant, surely, with that little face. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's it's kind of drawing the line from Veronica Lake's Jennifer to Sabrina, mm-hmm. the diminutive blonde who's quite fun-loving and airy and what just wants to have fun and is kind of always playing little pranks and not taking the the witchcraft part of her identity or her legacy or her supernatural legacy quite as seriously that is pure 90s sabrina the teenage witch as well like all she wants to do is dress up and go to the prom and like make up with harvey i haven't seen too much of the the new sabrina it seems like it takes it to a little darker place, but it's quite similar energy. Well, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say so because the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. The is new it not? One, 
it's it's very dark like it full-on uh creates a whole political structure they're full-on worshiping oh. the devil so kind of the relationship between satan and kind of all the ideas that come with that are also kind of deeply intertwined with the idea of witchcraft but yeah it's it's very very radically different from the 90s sabrina wow okay i have two things to say to that one is Mm. did they ruin sabrina um no maybe it's great in its own level but you said you mentioned the devil and worshiping the devil i don't think the devil gets a mention in i married a witch um which obviously would bring the witchcraft into a slightly darker Mm -hmm. level and also there is as you point out something about the the strength of that symbol of male sexuality that the devil represents which is mm. definitely missing from this film uh, you know the sexuality is all hers yeah absolutely all the men are kind of incredibly frigid in this film which is not usually a word that mm. gets applied to men no they are they are very frigid um yeah even like i was mentioned earlier robert mm. benchley who's obviously it's a delight to see him you know king of the yeah, algonquin round table um but yeah he's he's not into anything fun he's a doctor he's very serious but and he he's funny and he makes jokes but they're quite dry and he is not encouraging any Mm. kind of um funny business as i'm sure you know better than anyone there's room for many kinds of witch in this world yes indeed i think i think kind of that's a beautiful note to wrap up on thank you so much it's been such a joy to talk about i married a witch i've been waiting for the chance Oh no, thank you so much for coming on and I couldn't think of a better person to talk about this film and Veronica Lake. Where can people find out more about your work and you are quite prolific with your writing so is there any particular piece that you want to point out to people? So the best thing, if you have any interest in any of the nonsense I talked about, is I have a website called Silent London, silentlondon.co.uk, where I mostly write about silent film. But there, there is a link to where I write about other things um, for various people. You know, I mean, it just so happens that this month, the second edition of my book about a very witchy film is coming out. Um, It's not an actual witch, but it's got elements of that. Pandora's Box, the silent film starring Louise Brooks. And if you like this kind of naughtiness you'll probably like that film so that book's uh coming out later this month and i'm sure there's lots of details on my website about how to find that and that's it for another episode of the final girls podcast please do rate and subscribe on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcast you can find out more about what we do on thefinalghost.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at thefinalghost.uk. Let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving us a review. I keep saying this, but it does really, really help. And also, we want to know what you think of this first series and we're already planning our second one. You can also get in touch with us on hello at thefinalghost.co.uk. Follow Pamela on Twitter at Pam Hutch and I am on Anna Be Demented. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for a bit more witchy goodness next week.